friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24 this morning. If you haven't been with us in the last couple of weeks, uh, I do want to welcome you and greet you. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Penny. I'm the pastor here, and we've been going through the book of Ephesians, um, and last week we mentioned that, that Ephesians is broken up into two main uh, categories or two main sections. The first three passages, three first three chapters of Ephesians are dealing primarily with who we are in Christ, our identity, what God has done on our behalf through Jesus. And then the last three chapters are dealing primarily with uh, how we respond to that what we're supposed to do. So it's getting into the practicalities. But it's important to remember that what preceded chapters 4, 5, and 6 is 1, 2, and 3 because uh, we are very prone to start to think that we find our identity and what we do and who we are in what we do, that, uh, that we start to put our practical outworkings before the identity that God has claimed for us. So it's important for us to remember that, that pre, what precedes our works is God's grace, that God showers grace and mercy and care and love upon us, and because of that, we now respond with these works that Paul talks about in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And that's what Paul's concerned with, how we are to live, how we are to walk. That's what he said in the beginning of chapter 4, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have been called. And this morning, he begins in verse 17, that we are to no longer walk. That language of walk, it is biblical code word for live. How we are to live. How we are to live in light of what God has done on our behalf. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to tell us, encourage us to live in a particular way, and the way he's going to encourage us to do this is by contrast. He's going to contrast this old way of life with a new way of life. And so let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, on December 3rd, 2010, I found myself in the uh, federal courthouse building in St. Louis, Missouri. Don't worry, I wasn't there because uh, I was being prosecuted for anything. Uh, nothing popped up on my background check, don't worry. Uh, I wasn't there giving testimony either. I wasn't this expert or I hadn't seen anything that, that I was now being called to give witness to. No, it, it wasn't anything like that. I was there on December 3rd, 2010 because I was becoming an American citizen. 
So there I was. I had gone through the process. I had had my green card. I married an American woman. Uh, that's not why I married her, by the way. <laughs> uh, I had my green card. I had taken the test. I had had interviews. I had been fingerprinted countless times. I'm, I'm not sure why my fingerprints didn't change, but, but time after time after time, they asked me to come in and check me out again and again, and they did all these different things. I had paid my check because you have to pay to become a citizen, and now all the process was over, and I was in the federal courthouse building there to take my oath. It's actually a really fascinating process, and it's, it's a pretty cool ceremony if you've ever been to one. It, it's full of pomp, and it's, it's very grand. I remember sitting there with all these other people from all sorts of different places, China and Africa, South America, Latin America. We were all there because we were all becoming American citizens. Around the room were American flags, and there was a judge there to give us a charge of what it meant now that we were American. We all stood up, we took the, did the Pledge of Allegiance, we sang the national anthem, and then all the families sat down, and just those who were becoming citizens took an oath of citizenship. It's an oath of allegiance, really. In fact, in the oath, you say that you're going to swear off allegiance to presidents and kings and princes and potentates. <laughs> like, when have I ever said potentate before, right? But, but I'm swearing off allegiance to all these other powers and giving over complete allegiance, nationally speaking, to America. That from now on, I was supposed to bleed red, white, and blue. This is what it meant. And, and that's, that's what the ceremony is about. It's not just about this decision that I was making to become an American citizen, but it's actually seeking to orient us, to, to direct us in how we're supposed to live. And so that's what the charge that the judge gave us told us. And, and when we walked out the courthouse room, there was a table set up for us to fill out our voter registration cards because that's what you do if you're an American. You sign up to vote. You go participate in the process. And that's what I did became a citizen, and I started to embrace what it meant to be an American. I pull for U.S. soccer now, even though they, they don't win very often. But I pull for U.S. soccer, and, and, and I go and I vote, and I do all these sorts of things. I try embodying what it means to be an American. But even as I do this, there, there's still uh, this residue of Canada in my heart. I can't help it sometimes. I still have an affinity for donuts, particularly Tim Horton's donuts. I have affection for the queen, right? I know I'm not supposed to, but I do. You know, it's kind of cool, a monarchy. But, um, you know, I, 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 uh, <laughs> when Canada plays the U.S. in hockey, I pull for the Maple Leaf. I just have to tell you that. Like, I, I want Canada to beat the U.S. in, in hockey. And, and Kat will tell you that when I'm around my family, my O's get elongated. So it's not just a donut, it's a donut. <laughs> uh, I can't help it. It just happens, right? This residue of Canada is in my heart. I return to it, even though I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to be American, now, it's really inconsequential whether I elongate my O's or not, and it's kind of funny that I still cheer for Canada over the U.S., but, but really what this reminds me of and what it points to is not just that I have a, a proclivity to return to my Canadian ways, but I also have a proclivity to return to my sinful ways. You know, that, that there's a great change that's happened in my heart. 
and that's happened in yours if you're a Christian. The Bible's very clear that the old is gone. The new has come. We are new creations in Christ. And yet, there is still the residue of sin in our hearts. Right? There, there's almost this like light coating as though we haven't dusted for weeks of, of sin that kind of coats our, our, our hearts and our souls and is clinging for our allegiance. Though we have sworn it off, it keeps popping itself up again and again and again. That though we are new creations, we continue to resort to this old way of living. That's why Paul says in verse 17 that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles. Now, we've heard that language of Gentile a number of times in Ephesians. Up until now, Paul's talked about the Gentiles as those believers who were not ethnic Israel. So he's talking about Gentile believers, those who weren't part of the, the people of God, who believed the gospel and were brought in, these Roman Christians. But now he's not talking about those particular kind of Gentiles. He's talking about those people who are outside of God's people, the nations, those who have not believed God's word and have not accepted Christ and been brought into his people. And what he says is that's who we once were. That's who we were. We were the Gentiles. We were outside of God's people, and he says we must no longer walk that way. We must no longer walk that way, the, the way that was in accord with our former way of life. That though the residue of sin is still in us, we must disregard it and we must walk a new way, a new life. And so the way Paul is going to encourage us to do that is he's going to contrast our old way of life with our new way of life. And the reason why he's contrasting this is because so that we would see the old way of life as being so bitter that we would never want to taste of it again, that we would only want the sweetness of this new life. And so he begins with this old life, this old way, the old man. And what he says about this old man is that we were darkened. We were darkened. You see it in verses 17 through 18. Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Okay, so Paul's clearly talking about our minds, about our understanding, our cognitive abilities. But, but we have to ask the question, understanding in regards to what? Because it, it could seem as though Paul's saying, well, for those who are outside of God's people, if you're not a Christian, then, then you have no understanding at all of anything. Right? But, but we'd want to be hesitant to say that, right? Because some of the greatest minds, some of the best thinkers, some of the greatest writers and musicians, they're, they're not Christians. Is that what Paul's saying? That all of a sudden, once you become a Christian, you now have greater knowledge than everyone else? <laughs> I don't want to say that. And I don't think that's what Paul's saying either. No, in regards to what? Paul's speaking about our spiritual life. He's talking about the spiritual truths and realities of this world. And he's saying that before Christ revealed himself to us, we were darkened in our understanding to the truth of the gospel. It was as though we were walking around in a haze so dark that, that we thought darkness was light and good and bad was right. That in regards to understanding our spiritual state, we were darkened in our minds. But the problem wasn't just intellectual. 
The problem wasn't just in our understanding. Paul goes on. He says that the problem's also with our hearts. You see, it's not just that our understanding was darkened, our minds were darkened, but also that our hearts were hardened. He says in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay, that word for hardness right there in, in the Greek, the original writing, it, it can denote the, the idea of stubbornness. Okay, that, that we were stubborn in our hearts. It's actually the same word that shows up in Mark in this scene where Jesus enters the temple. So maybe you guys are, will remember this. Jesus enters the temple, the synagogue, on the Sabbath. And as he enters, following him comes a man with a withered hand. It's the Sabbath day, he's in the synagogue, and Jesus poses a question to all those who are, who are standing and watching. He says, is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath? So he's saying them up, right? And they don't respond. They're just quiet. Jesus heals the man, but it says in Mark that Jesus was angry with them because of their hardness or stubbornness of heart. See, what they were stubborn about was their unwillingness to acknowledge what Jesus was about to do as good. That they were, they were unwilling to say that this was something that was beautiful. That they were stubborn against God and his ways. That they were hardened in their hearts. What this is, is an obstinate rejection of the truthfulness of Christ. Stubbornness, it's, it's not just a quality that, that we experience before we're Christians. If, if you're like me, and I imagine many of you are, stubbornness still resides. There's that residue of it. The place that I feel this pop up in my own life is when my autonomy is challenged. When, when I have someone or something telling me outside of me saying, this is how you are to live. Do you ever dig your heels in when that happens? Kids, I want you to think about this. So kids, I want, I want to ask you a, an honest question. Have you ever been told by your mom or dad to do something and then as soon as they walk away, you do the very opposite? <laughs> I see all the parents looking at their kids. Yes, you do. <laughs> right? I mean, think about it. So Halloween just happened and in my family, we have bags full of candy, right? We, that's where we keep our, our Halloween candy. And have... Kids, have you ever been told by your mom and dad, you, you can't have that piece of candy? Not today, no Halloween candy, and they walk away. And have you ever taken one out of the bag? Yes. You don't want to be told what to do, right? Or you're told to go to your room, and what do you do? You sit there even firmer in that chair, right? I'm not moving. I don't care what you tell me to do. Or when your mom or dad says, don't slide down the banister because you might slip and fall and hurt yourself. And then you do it anyway, just to prove them wrong. Have you all ever done that? Guess what? Your parents do it too. That's right, amen. <laughs> that is some honesty right there. Yes, that's right. Thank you, Anne. You know what? Your parents do it too. And so do adults. All people do this. As soon as we are told we shouldn't do something, we want to do it. I could give you example after example in my own life, but, but we don't have time to do that. 
As soon as someone says, this is how you should live, we dig our heels in and we say, no, I know what's best for my own life. And we don't just do it with one another, we do it with God. Because if God knew me like I knew me, he wouldn't make me do these sorts of things. And he wouldn't tell me to do these. If he, if he knew what was really best for me like I know what was best for me, then he, he wouldn't care how I live. He would just kind of let me do it on my own. Now, we know better than to say that out loud. We say it in our hearts. We dig our heels in. and We have stubborn, hardened hearts. So what's true? And you know what? This doesn't just reflect that we have the residue of stubbornness in our hearts. It also reflects that we are easily deceived. Because that's what that is, is a deception that our way is better than God's way. And that's the third thing that Paul says about our former manner of life. Not just that we were darkened, not just that we were hardened, but that we were also deceived. Look at verse 22. Your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. Those desires that promise life and satisfaction but ultimately fall short. I mean, think about those things that that get expressed in this way. Autonomy, independence. Right? Financial security, safety, relationship, all of these things, they promise that they will be enough, that they will produce satisfaction, that they will give you life. But when we put our entire life in them, when we orient our hearts completely just for that one thing, we find that they're just deceiving us. We need a little bit more and a little bit more. Let me give you one example, financial security. This is something that's actually good, right? Like, we want to think about our 401ks and about uh, our retirement. We don't want to burden our families. We want to make sure we have enough in savings. These are good things, right? Yes, they are good things, biblical things, right? You can point to Bible passages that would talk about that. But the problem isn't with thinking, uh, the problem isn't just with thinking of these things as a good thing. It's when we orient our entire lives around them and we think that this is going to be enough. Ted Turner, who, as far as I know, is not a Christian. Ted Turner, who once owned uh, the Atlanta Braves and CNN and Turner Broadcasting Station, he also at one time, I don't know if he still is, but at one time he was the largest single individual landowner in the United States. He owned 2 million acres over 12 states. It's a lot of land. He said this, when money is your God, you, will never, you are never going to be fulfilled. You are never going to be happy because no matter how much you have, it is not enough. See, that's the deception, that it's enough. That if I just had a little bit more, then I would be satisfied. That if I just had that right relationship, then I would be satisfied. That if I just had a husband or a wife, then my heart would rest. That if I just had children, or children that behaved in this way, or if I just had this job, or if I just lived in this house, or if I just had this, whatever it might be, we all are prone to looking to something else and thinking that if we just had that, it would be enough. They're deceptive desires. 
Because we'll always want a little bit more and a little bit more. And the very fact that we need a little bit more reflects that it is not enough. It will never be enough. Deceive ourselves believing that these are what we ultimately need. Deceitful desires, this hardening of our wills, the the, uh, darkening of our minds, all of these are working against a true and new life. To to paraphrase Norman McLean, we are just a giant mess. (laughs) And in of ourselves, we are without hope. I mean, the darkness of our minds and the hardening of our hearts and the deceitfulness of our desires, in of ourselves, we are without hope. So what do we do with that? The good news is that God didn't leave us to ourselves. The good news is that God didn't leave us to ourselves. He didn't leave us in the darkness of our minds and the hardness of our hearts and the deceitfulness of our desires. Instead, he gave us his son. He gave Jesus to live and die and rise again to actually enlighten our minds and soften our hearts and speak truth to our desires. Paul says in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. There's that language again, in him. You remember, I mean, for it seemed like the first like eight sermons, all we talked about was being in Christ. It's been a few weeks since we've heard it, but there it is again. We are in him. That if you are in him, what is true of Jesus is true of you. That Jesus has defeated the power of sin. That he has done that. And so that is now true of you if your trust is in him. So that we don't have to be deceived anymore. That our hearts aren't hard anymore. But actually that we can throw off this former manner of life and live as this new self. This new way of living. And that's where Paul takes us. This new self. And as we live of this new self, the first thing that we do is we put off. Remember, just as Canada still has that residue, it still kind of resides in me. Same is true of sin. So that even though we are new creations, even though we have this new self, we still have sin. And so Paul says in verses 21 and 22, as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off. Now, why does, why does he say put off now? Like, what has changed? Because I just said we couldn't do anything about it in of ourselves, right? We were a big mess, and we couldn't do anything about it in of ourselves. But, but now he says put off. Well, what's changed? What's changed is Christ. See, Jesus has changed us. Jesus has entered in and he has defeated the power of sin so that now he invites us to participate in the war that is taking place against sin. Look, we we don't do that. We don't try to put off the old way in order that God would love us more. We do it because he has loved us. Because he has showered grace upon us. We put off what was old. We put off the the residue of sin. It it becomes like that dust that we can wipe away. Now, sometimes we have to scrub and sometimes we have to push, but, but now we are equipped by the Spirit and enabled by God to put off the old. It's actually what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. He says, The grace of God has appeared and it trains us to renounce 
ungodliness and worldly passions. Other passages, other translations translate it. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. See, at one point we couldn't say no. We could only say yes, but now we are able to say no to sin, to say no to ungodliness, to say no to deceitfulness. Christ has actually moved in our hearts in such a way that we can say no to it. He has enlightened our eyes so we can say no to greed and softened our hearts so we can say no to autonomous living. And because he has revealed his truth to us, we can say no to believing that the things of this world will satisfy. We've put off the old. This was brought home to me a number of years ago. I was with a friend of mine at a playground. All our kids were there. And uh, this, this friend of mine, his daughter, had just gone down the slide. She was probably about three or four. And so she comes down the slide, and she kind of, you know, wobbles a little bit. She kind of gets her balance, but, but she didn't move out of the way right away, right? She lingered at the bottom of the slide. And we just carried on our conversation. We didn't shoo her away. But in a second, a second later, my friend's son, her older brother, comes barreling down the slide, disregarding the fact that she's there, comes up and just shoves her and sends her flying. And she's crying, and, you know, there's, there's weeping, and there's tears, and, it, you know, it's not a good scene. She's not really hurt. She's just scared, you know. But my friend, so as the good dad was, he do. He goes over and, you're okay, sweetie, you know, dusts her off, pats her on the, the bottom, go go get back on the slide, go slide down. But then he goes over to his son. And he says to his son, he says, that's your sister. She loves you and cares about you. You're her older brother. You love her. Don't hurt her again. In that moment, what he was doing was encouraging his son to put off this behavior. But he didn't stop there. If he would have stopped there, it wouldn't have stood out to me. Because all of us would have done that, right? That's what we're good at doing. We tell our kids, don't. <laughs> Stop. No more. It wouldn't have stood out to me. But he went beyond that. He pulled his son aside and he said, don't hurt your sister. Protect her. Don't hurt your sister. Care for her. And as soon as I heard it, I knew that this was good. There was something about it that stood out to me. And, and the reason why it stood out to me was because it was thoroughly biblical. Because what he was telling his son to do was to put off this sinful behavior. Put off this old behavior. Put off the, the regarding only what you want to do and your impatience and your disregard for your sister and hurting her. And instead put on protection care, and love. It stood out to me so much, it, it became language in my own family. This is how I speak to my kids now when, when I'm in a good mind. <laughs> love one another. Protect one another. And that's what Paul tells us. Not just to put off, but to put on. To take that which we need to disregard and replace it with that which we need to embrace. That's what he says in verse 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This contrast between the old and the new. I mean, listen to the language. The old is darkened and alienated and ignorant and hard and callous. But the new 
It's like God, righteous, holy, true. There's this stark difference that Paul is giving us. He's using this language to indicate the significant change that has taken place in our lives. That we have nothing to do with the old anymore, but we only embrace what is new. Titus 2 gets at this as well. It, the gospel of God, it teaches us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires, to say no, to put off, but, but it also calls us to live godly and upright lives in this present age to put on. That's what we are to do. That we, not just, we don't just say no, but we say yes. See, Christians are good at saying no. In fact, I would imagine that if the world asked us how, what we are characterized by, they would probably list all the things that we're against. And there, there is a reason for that. We need to say no to things, but, but we're not just characterized by what we are against. We should be characterized by what we are for. Righteousness and truth. Beauty and goodness. Love and care. This means that as we fight sin, we don't just say no to it, but we, we replace it. It means that we, we fight lust by embracing true beauty. It means that we fight greed by replacing it with generosity. It means that we denounce lies by promoting truth. That we put off, but we put on. And we do this because this is how we were meant to live. This is how we were created to be righteous and holy, true and good. I mean, think about the language that Paul uses, this life-giving language, renewal, likeness of God, holiness. That is what you were made for. I mean, the old man, dark and ignorant and calloused. Who, who wants to be characterized like that? None of us, because that's not what we're made for. That belongs to the old man, not the new man. Paul is concerned with what it means to be truly human. And that's what this new man is. It's, it's what God has created us and formed us to be, the new self. This is reflected in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. This wonderful book that talks about heaven and hell. There's this scene in which there's a ghost, uh, Lewis calls him a shadow of a man. And he is standing there, and he has a little red lizard stuck on his shoulder. If, do you all remember this? Those of you who have read it, there's this little red lizard, and he whispers in the ghost's ear. And he goes with him wherever he goes. The lizard is uh, sin. It's to illustrate our sin. And there he is. He, he goes everywhere he goes, and he's whispering, and he's talking, and he's manipulating. But, but the ghost, the shadow of a man, he comes in contact with an angel. And the angel says, I can get rid of that lizard for you if you want. And the ghost thinks about it. He considers it, but he hesitates because he knows if he, says, if he says for the angel to get rid of the lizard, the lizard will be killed. It'll be done. It'll be over. And so he has to consider it, and he has to ponder it. And as he's considering it, the lizard starts whispering in his ear, and he says things like this. He says, he can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Sin whispers in his ear, how could you live? Trying to stave off death, he says, I'll be so good to you. 
I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. That sounds like lies, doesn't it? How can you live without me? Sweet and fresh, almost innocent. The deceptive words of sin. Well, the ghost, the shadow of a man, he hears this whispering and, and he hears the deception for what it is. And so he says to the ghost, be done with it. Get rid of the lizard. And so the, ghost, the angel comes and takes the lizard and casts it to the ground. And the ghost erupts in, in pain because it hurt to remove the sin. But there the, the lizard dies. But he doesn't just die. Do you remember what comes in its place? Up out of the ground where the lizard had died is this beautiful white silvery stallion that out of the ugliness there was beauty that out of the almost innocent it was replaced with purity but the change doesn't just take place in the confines of the lizard the change takes place in the ghost as well the shadow of a man now that he's done with sin lewis as he's looking upon this as he narrates it he writes this i saw unmistakably solid shadow of a man becoming solid, growing ever more, every moment more solider. <laughs> Dear Lewis, you can make up words. The upper arm and the shoulder of a man, then bright, still, and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched an immense man, not much smaller than the angel. When sin was a part of him, he was a shadow of a man. But now that sin is done away with, he becomes who he was meant to be. Immense and beautiful, strong and powerful. But it didn't stop there. You remember what he did? He hops on the stallion and he rides it around. That which once mastered him, he now masters. Because he was made, this is who he was made to be. This truly human man done away with now with sin. And the same is true of us. Because of what God has done by his power and his grace, because he has revealed to us the love of Christ, he has made us these new creations. He himself strengthens us to say no to that sin, to cast it down, and to be done with it forever. Say yes to what is beautiful, to righteousness, to put on the new. To live as new creations, the new creations that God has called us to be. The new man. The man that God has intended us, intended for us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. That is because of your grace and your mercy, your care and your love, that you have equipped us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And we pray that you would continue to give us eyes to see, that you would give us softened hearts to feel, that you would give us ears to hear the truth of your word, that we would be done with sin, and we would cling to your goodness. Would you give us a vision of Christ that all other visions would pale in comparison to, and we would grasp hold, we would say yes to the new man that you have created us to be. Do this, we pray.